Hey everybody, Ruvain Spolter here for The Mission Project. Many people around the world make it an important point to learn Torah every day. Many do Daf Yomi, many study Tanakh Yomi or the 929 Project, but others are just looking for a meaningful way to make Torah learning part of their daily schedule. And that's why I'm so passionate about Mishnah Yomi and The Mission Project. Mishnah is amazing, it's concise, it's clear, you learn so many critical topics and points of information about Shas, and you can cover ground. You can learn uh, Masechta, and then another Masechta, and before you know it, you've learned a Seder of Mishnah, you've covered a tremendous amount of Torah material just by spending 10 minutes a day. So won't you join the people who are proud of their Torah learning, their daily learning in the Mishnah Project, you can find the Mishnah Project and join our WhatsApp group or our Telegram group or learn on our website at mishnah.co. That's mishnah, M-I-S-H-N-A-H dot C-O. Join now because on November 17th, we finish Seder Zerayim and begin Masechet Shabbat and Seder Moed. What a great opportunity to join the Mishnah Project. Have a great day. weekly podcast about modern orthodoxy, religious Zionism, and everything in between. And yes, I did just give it a new name. <laughs> everything in between. Everything yeah, in between. We just changed our name. We are now called religious uh, No, we're not. RZ, I, people sometimes say, what does RZ stand for? Yeah. Which is interesting. Um, I'm here with Rabbi Mali Bravsky. Hello, Rabbi Bravsky. How are you? Uh, I am well, Baruch Hashem. How are you doing, Harab, And with Harab Johnny Solomon. Hello, Harab Johnny. Hello, hello. Wait, if we do this on video, I should say, not, to my I'm not right. ask you again. You just said how you're doing, so there's no point repeating it. Ah, okay. Um, yeah. You see what I just did there. Molly, I got a question for you. Are you, <laughs> yeah. are you, pa- are you packing today? Are you packing heat? Did you bring <laughs> your not, gun to the I podcast? Never, <laughs> I do not have a gun, <laughs> which I did not bring to the podcast. Would you, would you carry a gun if you felt the need? If I felt I the need. I, of course, bring this up. I, of course, bring this up for our listeners who don't know. Because of the mini brouhaha surrounding the picture that emerged uh, of the ladies of the coalition. They were all invited, all the women of the coalition. Some of the ladies of the coalition, let's be clear. Well, they were all invited. They didn't all come. Five of them. But whatever, it wasn't a... Correct. Okay. For personal reasons. It wasn't the ladies, it was the wives of the ladies. The wives of the the coalition heads were invited by by, uh, Bibi Netanyahu's wife to come and shmooze. And they said it was lovely. Yeah, I was going to say, Sarah Netanyahu. Okay. Um, and to come and schmooze. And in the picture, you can clearly see uh, the wife of Bitsal Smochich. Her name is Ayala. No, wife of Itamar no, Ben Gvir. See, I'm getting <laughs> everything start right. Over. Whose name is? Whose name is? Come on, does she not have her own identity? Whose name, Whose name is? I know. Ayala. I'll, Ayala know, Ben Gvir. I'll explain why I know her name okay. in a minute. <laughs> Ayala Ben Gvir. And in, it, on it, you can see clearly she's got her handgun on her clip on her waist. And of course, uh, the Tikshoret, the, uh, I, I think probably. Um, in light of the fact that uh, that Bengvir is well known, he was known for brandishing a gun, in, like you know, early in the campaign. So they made a big brouhaha about her carrying a gun. 
So uh, that's why, Molly, I'm asking you, do you, do you, do you carry? Are you packing? You know, you know that she wrote then a tweet about why she does. She responded to their challenge. She said, I'm a mother. I drive through dangerous roads. I need a gun. Deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she was very, she was on the radio this morning and like they asked her about it and she's like, you know, what's amazing about the, about, uh, about the people that disagree, she said the left, but I'm, I don't want to get left or right. What's amazing about them is they're all in favor of women serving the idea of women, you know, defending our country, being in, in you know, in crevy positions. But all of a sudden I carry a handgun and all of a sudden like, oh my God, how could she do that? Molly, I, I come back to you though. You know, you had to, you, you said no, would you? Okay, I don't think so. I don't think so for multiple reasons. Mm. Um, but the reason that I that I thought this was a funny story that went okay, delete, start over. Yeah. <laughs> the reason this was interesting to me is because my friend sent me this story about Itamar Benvir's wife carrying a gun. I have a picture, and then all of a sudden, like a light bulb went off in my head, and I said, "Oh, I think she was my son's teacher in high school." So I dashed off a WhatsApp to my son, which I will read. Was Ben Gavir's wife your teacher? What was her name? Did she carry Neshek? These are the answers. Ha, 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 which I was really right. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> Ken, tamid hayala ekdach. Okay, so apparently I like, none of us registered. I think my son would come home and be like, Itamar Ben Gavir's wife is my teacher. I think for Sifrut. Um, her name is Ayala. And, and like, it never registered. I never spoke to this woman. I have to admit I was a bad mother and I never like met her at like, you know, the Asi Photo Reem. There's I, so I, many I, interesting things coming so out of this story that right have nothing to do exactly. with Ayala like Benvir. It went right over my head. I just remember like vague memories of standing in the kitchen and having my son say, Itamar Benvir's wife is my Sifra teacher and like totally ignoring it. And now it's like, to me, it's just like one of these stories about Israeli society. You know what I mean? So like, I don't want to make light of it. And I know there are people who take Itamar Benvir and his positions very seriously. And I, so, you know, like, I don't want them to take that in the wrong way. But it was just such an Israeli story when my friend was like, look at this story about Itamar Benvir's wife carrying a gun. And I'm like, oh, I think that I think she taught my son. And my son was like, absolutely. You know, and like, it, 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 I don't know. For me, it felt very Israeli. So to me, too, there were, really, the there were really two interesting things about that story. The first, that you never once met with your son's seafood teacher, which is understandable. And the second is that you WhatsApp with your son and he answers you in Hebrew. Yes. That was uh, I was just about to, to say, by the way, the most Israeli thing is who doesn't WhatsApp their kids? I mean, I talk to my kids on WhatsApp and sometimes I see them in real life. <laughs> and no, but Mali wrote in English with some Hebrew because that's unfortunately the way we are hardwired as Olim. And our kids don't yeah. because that's who they Johnny, are. Johnny, your kids answer you in Hebrew in, in, in writing in WhatsApp? See, we all write I, in I English. I want them to. Really? Sometimes I want them to. No, never. I want them to. When, well, sometimes when I leave the messages in Hebrew, they say, why did you do that? Like for them, it's daddy is the English speaker. And so talk to me in English. But they but, talk uh, back in I English? get a lot of pleasure when they write back. Yeah, they write back in English. We, we, but I'd like them not to on occasion. It's so interesting. Maybe it could be like our kids. We came as Olim and all of your kids were born, literally born here. Mm. You, they've been here forever. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. As, as my daughter, my Sabrait gets older, I guess we'll see if that's a difference. Yeah. But we digress. That's not our topic today, but a fun, interesting topic nonetheless. Just, just one, one quick thing, sure. sorry, just on the theme of WhatsApp. Do you all have family WhatsApp groups? Oh, yeah. Does anybody there's also not the multiple have family ones. WhatsApp? There's like No, we have multiple ones, ones but like the, like the, the nuclear boys, one. Then there's like the girls, then, do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. My kids have one without the parents. And then well, of course. Yeah, of course. which I didn't know about Obviously. until recently. Uh, Johnny, I'll ask you a better question. <laughs> do you have your own WhatsApp group with yourself? 
I do. That's where I save all my things. Oh, I only found out about this like three weeks but ago. Really? For years and years, I didn't to, like, understand how I could send myself things, stuff. So it's the best thing ever. Everything. That's the best thing ever. That's how yeah. you save. I know people that have multiple WhatsApp groups with themselves. Like that's the way they keep different notes. Like yeah. me, money, <laughs> me, you know, like I only have one. I think it's, a, you know, Mugzam. Anyway, but we digress. We actually have a topic today. Today, we're, we're marking the second yard site of Rabbi uh, Dr. Lord, Rabbi Dr. Jonathan Sachs, Zecher Tzadik Livracha. And we thought this was a good opportunity to interview uh, Johnny, basically to interview Johnny about the memory and the legacy of Rabbi Sachs, and to sort of discuss, to try to figure out what is causing this, you know, this really amazing um, yearning and desire for the Torah of Rav Sachs and the popularity of his Torah, specifically at this point in time. So Johnny, uh, first of all, uh, uh, Johnny is a, is a Talmud of Rav Sachs and he knew him personally and he studied under him. Any of that incorrect yet, Johnny? Or we're recording video now. It's, so kind, kind, it's all correct to a point. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, whatever. You, you knew him personally. You're a student of his Torah. You've actually read all of his books. I'm sure you've got all mm -hmm. of them behind you somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. And um, and uh, in addition, I'm very very proud to I can announce officially as of today. Did you sign that contract right now? That uh, Bezrat. I need to do it, but yeah, while, while we're podcast, talking, you yeah. can just sign your name. Okay, that Harav uh, <laughs> Johnny will be giving a class in, under the auspices of Herzog of Global, a course, an online yeah. asynchronous course with Herzog Global on teaching the Torah of Rav Sachs in the in the Chumash classroom for teachers, meaning how do you incorporate his, this incredible ideology and this incredible teaching when you're teaching Chumash to your students? Because there isn't, most schools don't have a, you know, Rav Sachs class, but you want to use the Chumash that we're, that we're teaching as a, as a vehicle in order to, uh, to incorporate important Torah concepts and Torah ideas. And I'm very, very excited that uh, Johnny has agreed to give the course. It will not be this spring. It's going to be in the fall of 2023, but Bezat Hashem, that will be. So, Harav Jani, uh, I just really, I, I, I really just started reading Rav Sachs's weekly, you know, Covenant and Conversation uh, of late. Because I always, like, when I used to read him, I always thought, oh, it's very nice. He says nice things, but I never felt he was mechadesh. Like, he said things that I knew. I was a rabbi. He said important things. But it wasn't Mechadesh, and only recently I've become more sensitive, A, to the beauty and power of his knowledge and his language, on the one hand, and also to, that he is Mechadesh in his own way, in his own sort of subtle way. So I, I guess, you know, we're, we're throwing questions at you, Johnny, he's not prepared for these questions, but what would you say that his primary chidush in his teaching was over the in the corpus of his of his writings of his books and also in his in his Torah writings, what did he want to bring to the table that was unique to him? <laughs> it's such a great question, but you know we're talking about somebody who was brilliant, a brilliant philosopher, uh, a brilliant uh, scholar of economics, uh, an advisor, uh, a Torah teacher, and an author of about forty books, a broadcaster, etc. So it's going to be a little bit of a, a, a tough thing to try and distill oh, I forgot to say, you know, all it, it, his ideas. quick answers, quick answers, right. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know we said that before. Um, he wanted Jews to celebrate their Jewish identity. He wanted Jews to appreciate their heritage. 
he wanted Jews and non-Jews to recognize uh, what it means to believe in God. He wanted us to see the good in faith and see the good in each other. And his chidush, I mean, he, he, he was mechadesh many things. But I'll tell you one quick, quick thing, uh, and then we'll, we'll turn it over. Uh, he speak, basing himself on, uh, on Rav Yosef Albo, uh, he talks about how the three different ways to connect with God is creation, revelation, and redemption. And most rabbis, when they talk about connecting with God, they'd say through Torah is a primary way, and you can also connect to God through nature and through good deeds. Rabbi Sachs basically said you can connect to God through the world, through creation. You can connect to God through revelation, through Torah. But you can primarily connect to God through people. I think that's a powerful chidush, that he found his encounter with God through people, and that made him give us a whole theology which came from uh, human interactions and what we can do to make the world a better place. Can you elaborate just a little bit about what that means to find God through people? What, what, what did he mean by that, to your understanding? Well, he actually himself uh, reflected on this when he said that the place we felt most inspired with his connection with God was when he was in dialogue with other people. Uh, he strongly believed that each of us have a soul, but all created the image of God. And that means if you deeply meditate on the power of a being, you are automatically deeply meditating on a creation of God, an expression of God, and a desire of God to uh, add that voice to the chorus of humanity. Uh, and so that's really what he wished to celebrate. He believed in the dignity of difference, that's the name of one of his books, and that by every one of us existing in the world, we are a, 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 a small voice in this great chorus. And by listening to each other and learning from each other and working together, we can fulfill the expectation to mend the world uh, and to be servants of God and uh, really bring God's presence more to the world. Molly, I'll throw the next question from you. Oh, okay. Well, I, I, can I just add an answer? Sure, yeah, 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 100%. Okay. So when I, I choose, I'd like to hear Johnny's reflections on this, which is when you said like, oh, originally I was, you know, would read his things. Um, I'm assuming you mean the like little um, internet partial. No, I, I meant, I meant the, co the covenant and conversation. Those are not, those are not little. Those are essays. They're essays and Oh, partial. you're saying in the books, in the books, not the internet. No, no, like, in, internet, the, in, the, in, the, in the, in the, in the, like in the, oh, you was on the internet thing. was then printed in the yeah, book. Yeah, but it was internet, I think it was a little bit shorter than the essays on the books, but okay, it doesn't matter. See, um, I don't even know that. Interesting. It could be, I'm, it could be I'm mistaken about that, but I, I think what I'm, the reason I'm mentioning it is because I think one of the greatest skills of Rabbi Sachs was that he was so good at communicating ideas um, clearly complex ideas, profound ideas in a very, very clear way that could be understood on, mul on multiple levels and with multiple levels of analysis and, you know, to multiple um, people with multiple educations or, or multi different ages. And, and I think it was like, you know, there was something maybe deceptively in the beginning, deceptively simple people could be could think that there was something very deceptively simple about Rabbi Sachs. Mm. And I think with time, um, he just revealed himself to be more and more profound. I think he also addressed so many issues that are so relevant, like he answered the questions of the times. He started writing books about all the issues that people were 
concerns about modernity and and science and and um, and religion and and plurality and and nationalism and universalism like like all the issues that 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 um, people are preoccupied with he started to, to to not just write about but wrote full books about and slowly like by the time um, he passed away unfortunately I think people had just started to realize that this was really someone who was a thinker for our age um, a deep and profound thinker for our age on the level of the great thinkers of the time so I, I, you know Johnny I just I'm curious whether you agree or disagree what you think about that that like on the one hand he had such an ability to communicate and such a uh, you know both in in speaking you know his videos or his lectures and in writing he's so clear and as you said like covenant and conversation is the easiest thing to bring when you have to read something because they're short but they're nonetheless profound um but they're easy easily digestible and at the same time he's not a simple thinker and his ideas are are really really profound i'm just curious if you so, what you think you about know that. i i grew up in the uk so when his chief rabbinate really overlapped with my coming of age and certainly in my younger years i thought of him as being a great ambassador of the jews but i didn't automatically presume that the torah he was sharing was necessarily the torah for me uh, and i'm very happy to, honest enough to to say that I, I read a couple of his books but not all certainly some of his earlier books were either more philosophical or more basic neither of which necessarily automatically spoke my language but then as i started to teach i read them more and I realized the depth therein and how actually they contained many, many kernels uh, of wisdom, many great chidushim, and incredible uh, perspectives that helped me make sense of the world. And then when I made Aliyah, not long afterwards, I decided to deliver a course. I think it was the first that, that started about eight, nine years ago, Mahomayan, on the thought of Rabbi Sachs. And the reason I did so was to help my students know how to communicate Judaism to less observant Jews and non-Jews. And that led me to read his entire library and then collate quotes from all his books, which led me to uh, create this thing called Chiefly Quotes, which I kind of gifted back to Rabbi Sachs, which is on his website. Uh, and the more I taught his writings and his teachings, the more I listened to his videos and his words, uh, the more I realized how remarkable they were and how there's a, a profound theology. Also, by the way, how even though he, let's say you mentioned his book about the Great Partnership, the ideas in that book were already referenced like five, six books beforehand, and he was starting to build them up and develop them. And all of a sudden then later on, and you see the um, evolution of ideas when you look through his entire library. Uh, and by this point in time, I've spent the best part of the last decade um, uh, teaching his writings and quoting them so frequently that they're really part of what I say. Most people who follow me on Facebook know that not a week goes by without me quoting him on a number of occasions. Over the past few days, I've delivered uh, a number of, of talks and lectures in, in his honor and in his memory. And, and, and they are remarkable. Well, they are extraordinary, they are deep, and as you say, they are for our time, uh, and they showed a deep understanding of the complexities of our time. And uh, I'll end here by saying uh, his office, and he had an amazing team, produced an extraordinary video for Shloshim, um, really, which I've watched many times. And what you had there was Jews and non-Jews of all different uh, settings explaining how his words spoke to them enabled them to see things differently and you realize 
that everybody has their own different experience of Rabbi Sachs. But the fact that so many people can attest to that in such a huge range of disciplines, uh, because he was so brilliant and was basically multilingual, and not just in terms of less language, but more in terms of uh, conceptual language, uh, everybody felt that they could talk to him. And, and because he was a unique figure who understood both the shadows and the light, as I said a couple of days ago in a talk uh, that I gave in Jerusalem, uh, people with different dispositions all felt that they could connect with him. And that made him quite remarkable. Okay. Um, you know, it's interesting as you, as you describe it, one gets the sense that it could very well be he just got much, much better over time. Meaning the more you write, the, more you're, 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 the better your writing gets, and the more you're able to sort of knead things in in a natural way. And that, that would make sense. Do you, do you think that that was true, that his, his later writings are, I guess, more sophisticated or more nuanced than the earlier ones, or you don't, you don't sense that? I, I don't think so necessarily. I mean, so one of the, my, my most favorite books are To Heal a Fractured World, which he wrote already uh, quite some years ago, uh, and Celebrating Life, which is a small book that was given out actually for free to Jewish students in the UK. Uh, this is about 20 years ago. Um, what I do know is the following. When he was chief rabbi and he had the burden of, of being a chief rabbi, he had a certain amount of time and, and he was mm. bound somewhat by those responsibilities. And when he retired from being chief rabbi, he became this global figure. He already was, but he was by virtue of that position. Then he became it by virtue of his opportunities that he'd created for himself and the kind of recognition he'd received over that period of time and enabled him to do a few more things that perhaps he probably couldn't have done uh, earlier on, have a little bit more time uh, to attend both to writing and to lectures and to research of topics that meant a lot to him that perhaps he couldn't have done the quite the same level of deep dives when you're carrying the burden of a whole community um, which isn't to be taken lightly. So he spoke, he, he published basically a book a year, but certainly some of, the more, really right, some of the more sophisticated books uh, took obviously a significant amount of preparation. And I think you do see differences um, in style between earlier and the later, uh, the later a little bit more popular, but nevertheless, uh, some certainly do suggest the, the freedom of his ability to be in many other different places um, which, of course, we're now the beneficiaries of. Johnny, can I ask you one question about that? Um, I, I know that... I don't know if I can answer yeah, no, no, it. No, no, you can't I'm answer I'm hardly it. an expert. <laughs> I try. We're no, here to ask him questions. It's a yes and no. Uh, it's more of a yes and no, but then I want you to elaborate on your answer. I think it was you. That's the question. Was it you who said... I remember somebody said this, and I th I, I thought that it was really true and, and, and kind of spurred me to thinking that Rabbi Sachs was ironically much more... Um, his, his influence was much more profound after he left the official job of the chief rabbinate. Like, ostensibly, the chief rabbi of England has, you know, this reach and this status and this stature and this ability to communicate with people, and that's his official job. But that actually, in reality, Rabbi Sachs impacted the world, certainly the Jewish world. Um, you know, maybe we'll talk about this later, but I'm thinking about the youth who started to read his books much more when he stopped being chief rabbi and, you know, kind of became much more of, a, he, he, somehow he didn't become less well-known, he became more well-known um, and his impact was greater. So A, was that you who said that? And if it wasn't, um, do you agree do you think it's true? with it? Yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. yeah, Do you think it's true? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know if I'd necessarily, I don't know if I said it. I do think there was a, a seismic shift 
that occurred um, afterwards. As chief rabbi, he was ultimately the rabbi's rabbi. Obviously, he had loyalties and responsibilities to the communities that he served. Um, he, he was industrious, incredibly industrious, as a scholar, as a writer, as an academic. That certainly continued. Uh, and, and many of his great books were written during that period of time. At the same time, like every community leader, there were headaches that arose from being a community leader. You can't always please all the people all the time. He was involved, you know, head of the Betin, uh, and that required uh, delicate decision-making and interventions. He was a guide to, to all the rabbis in the UK and, and their families and the youth leaders involved in the youth groups uh, in the UK. And so while that was a great privilege and, and many of us were recipients of that and I was an educator and I was able to have access to him in many different ways, uh, also came with with a burden, responsibilities. And but, wait, but aside example, from the, the burden, do you think there were things that he couldn't or wouldn't say because he was chief rabbi and represented a wider spectrum of Jews than he, than he would have said or could have said than he can say once he's no longer the official representative of British Jews. Or I'd say it differently. Why do you... hundred true. Why do you... Okay, sorry, you'll answer that. But why do you think... It, like, until then, he felt very sectarian. Like, oh, Jonathan Sachs, he's the chief rabbi of England. And after that, it feels more like he became in a global... Um, I, I probably could use the word Godzilla, I don't know. But like, you know what I'm saying? Like, certainly of modern orthodoxy. And, global and his, thinker, personality, global speaker. thinker. But that's we not know. my Molly, that's not my question. Obviously, I know. He went your to question YU. is about was he hindered by and but I'm asking maybe. I didn't say hindered, maybe I said limited. Did he limited. limit himself? Right. But I'm I'm still curious about this explosion. How do you understand this explosion that all of a sudden he became he didn't just become known to British people or to people who weren't British as that that British thinker or that British chief rabbi. He became known as a a world class rabbinic thinker. So okay, so I'll, I'll give you a couple of, uh, I'll respond to both of those. Firstly, um, I mean, he was hugely regarded e e even when chief rabbi, there's no question about that. Um, yes, there were certain things that either he self-censored or other people would have advised him to self-censor uh, when chief rabbi. That's just the nature of Anglo jury. Although I would say, uh, use the word um he didn't say the word denominational, but I'll still refer to that word. He never saw himself as only being a voice of orthodoxy. He saw himself as being a representative of Jews. Uh, but certainly that title uh, could be perceived as being only representative of a certain group of people. And when he retired, he didn't feel the need to be pocketed in that way. But to respond to how can we saw that explosion? No, no, wait, wait a second. Point, is, before you can explain the explosion, then in which ways did he limit himself? What wouldn't he say as chief rabbi, that he would then that he was then comfortable saying, well, no, post-chief rabbi. Okay, first and foremost, let's be clear, one of his books were banned, uh, and that was a very uh, serious uh, sugya in his life, the dignity of difference. He actually... Um, okay, not knowing the history, which book was it, and what was it about? The Dignity of Difference, uh, and basically where he talked about truth being accessible through many different faiths. And, uh, ah, I remember that. And, yeah. Right, and Rav Yashiv and Rav Rakov, etc. Basically banned his book and, and spoke very sternly uh, about him. <laughs> Molly, I think that changed... answers the media for the, 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 the meteoric rise. <laughs> as soon as his books were banned, everybody wanted well, to know, uh, oh, what did he well, write? No, he was, it was already a very, very popular book. Let's be clear, his books, mo most of his books uh, that were published during his chief rabbinate 
were actually written for the non-Jewish audience. Some were for Jews, but most were for Jews and non-Jews. Um, and, and that means if you went to a general uh, bookstore in England, they were there. Now, that may well be nowadays the case, but it would be, it's quite an unusual thing in England that in a regular general bookstore, you have books of a rabbi about matters of faith. And that itself uh, was reflective of his reach by being chief rabbi who could be on the BBC. He did a national broadcast uh, before Rosh Hashanah. He was on Radio 4, thought for the day regularly, uh, and was in wrote columns in the Times. So already he, had, he was already a very big, uh, you know, not just scholar, but a very highly regarded um, uh, thought leader, uh, advisor to prime ministers, etc. So even though pre Charles, his cessation of being chief it. rabbi, he was he was a, a giant within our aisles and beyond. But what changed in terms of some people's perception? First and foremost, when he retired, he went to America. He went to YU. And while he made, made visits, being there for a significant period of time very much changed his footprint in America. Beyond this, his books have started to be translated into Hebrew. By now, we have a large library of his books in Hebrew. Right. Uh, don't forget, he was a, he, following the Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, he, he strongly uh, celebrated the power of technology. And we've lived, basically, uh, over the last 15, 20 years, in a re real, real um, rise in what we can do when we have content which is shareable online. Uh, so lots of things have happened. Technology publishing, uh, his, his flexibility to go to certain places, um, and the kind of creative projects he was able to get involved with, all that together, and the need to have somebody who doesn't just represent one type of Jew. He didn't see himself as just being a rabbi for the Orthodox or just being a rabbi for the modern Orthodox. He was trying to be a leader, a global leader, and he was an outstanding ambassador. He made Jews proud to be Jews. Wait, let, let, go back. And when I, you have I somebody feel... like that who is brilliant, who can hold their own, then uh, that with his soft tones and great writings led him to be really uh, a, a, a favorite for so many. So, Johnny, just go back for a second. Could you give me one example of something that you feel like he wouldn't talk about while he was chief rabbi, a topic that was important to him, whereas after he was no longer chief rabbi, it was it was an important theme that he would come back to, or there, you don't if you can think of something like that. Because I'm I'm trying to like I want to learn from this conversation and I don't, I don't want, I mean a eulogy is fine but I want to like sort of drill down a little bit and get more more specifics and learn. I learn I, I I won't say there's any singular topic. I I believe that he felt by that point he didn't need to check what he was going to say with others and before that point he did at times feel the need to check and it was advisable to check because he was a representative of a community uh, which was a delicate ecosystem and that confidence itself uh, meant that he was prepared to explore ideas uh, in ways that perhaps previously he wouldn't have done just to yeah i mean i can tell you certain things i don't know how much a public knowledge and how much one should but nevertheless um i think when you are a public servant you have to wear that crown with care. He was somebody who wasn't going to be irresponsible in any which way. But the Anglo-Jewish community is, broadly speaking, quite conservative. Uh, and some of his ideas were a, a little bit more liberal-minded. Some not, for that matter. Um, and I just think he felt that that was liberating. And, and uh, it led to 
a variety of conversations. Just take, okay, just to, I'll give you a very simple example. He did a conversation with Richard Dawkins, right, uh, a, a, a few years ago. I think as chief rabbi, he would have been advised not to. That doesn't mean he wouldn't have done and shouldn't have done. I just think people would have said, that's not a good move on your part because it could backfire. By, that, by the time he'd had that conversation, I don't think he minded, mattered. He just felt, I'm going to have the conversation I want to have. Uh, I'm not speaking for him. I don't know. I can't speak about the psychology and decision-making, but I, I'm guessing something like that. The kind of conversations which would have been absolutely fine, but perhaps politically delicate, uh, I don't think he, he had to feel so bound by those uh, sensitivities. Mali? An yeah, an another thing, Johnny, that again, I, I kind of touched on before, but really strikes me about Rabbi Sachs is how he really had the brilliance to hone in on the, I don't want to say hot button because that sounds kind of trivial and trending, but I'd, but I'd say the issues that were really concerning people, especially the youth, you know, he wrote about morality. He wrote about, again, science and, and philosophy and, and Torah. Um, he wrote about religious extremism, right? These are all issues that, that are extreme. I'm, I'm thinking about this because I'm thinking about thinkers and their relevance in today's world because I'm writing an article about this topic in a different context. But I, I just, I keep coming back to Jonathan Sachs as a model of a person who, it's not just that when you asked him a question, he had a good answer. He, he took the initiative to, to tackle these challenging issues of our time. And I'm just wondering, like, you know, did he see that? At, like, was that just because those were the issues that naturally interested him? Like, hey, really interesting. I think I'll talk to Richard Dawkins. Or do you think it was conscious? Like, he was aware of, you know, kind of what issues were disturbing or, or occupying the minds of um you know the people people of our time and then he decided okay i have to write about this or i have to talk about this i can answer that it's obvious that he was his hand his fingers on the pulse of what was going on and he clearly understood i mean he was clearly talking to students and people he clearly felt the need to address you know issues that were coming up issues of atheism and culture and uh and uh, you know all of the all of the issues that challenge religion. I, I think that was even that's obvious from a, from a bystander's point of view. Johnny, you want to add to that? And also to explain religion. No, although yeah. although I do want to clarify, I didn't check. I didn't check, but I'm quite sure. Actually, those conversations with Dawkins, I think, happened towards the end of his chief rabbi, not after. But I think by that point, again, this was it, it, this was reflecting a greater confidence and uh, in terms of the directionality of his conversation. But yes, he, he was firstly his library was enormous. He was incredibly well read. Um, you know, Amazon <laughs> delivered more books there than than almost anywhere else. Uh, and <laughs> it wasn't just he was thinking about things. He was reading about things. He was having conversations with people. He was enriching his understanding. He was creating connections. He was thinking f uh, about their, their implications. He brought with not just an understanding of Torah, but an understanding of, of um, philosophy, of economics, of government, mm -hmm. of politics, uh, uh, really... He, because his reach was so far and his interests were so broad, that means almost everything that touches the life of anyone interested him in one way or another. And when you're that engaged in so many different things, it's just you know a, a pleasure to talk with somebody like that because you never get bored. And I think that's the key point. 
no person could ever have gotten bored with any conversation with him because he would have never run out of things to say which were brilliant. Uh, and that too is, is, you know, not just his credit, but it's, it's a great, uh, great reflection on his brilliance. And yet, I'll just quickly end before hopefully we pivot towards the Israel dimension. He was an incredibly humble person who often doubted himself. And, and so that too, I think, endeared him to so many. He was somebody who was so brilliant with multiple degrees, right? Multiple awards, who's written all these books. And yet he was a relatively quiet, um, humble person who really um, wished to be a servant of God, who, who, who yearned to be in a relationship with God. Uh, this is uh, what he wanted to be on his tombstone, as it is. Uh, and that's really a core expression of, of his almost innocent uh, sweet relationship with with the Almighty, and that too was a very very beautiful thing to observe and to experience. Okay, before we get to the Israel dimension, uh, we'll take a quick break, and we'll come back right after these words. Shalom. This is Rav Johnny Solomon, and I would like to tell you about the services that I provide to men and women around the world. Firstly, if you have a sheila a halachic query or a halachic topic you would like to learn more about as it applies to your life and you feel that you don't have a Rav with whom you can discuss this question, I offer online halachic consultations. Secondly, if you have some theological or spiritual query or if you're in need of some chizuk, I provide spiritual coaching. And lastly, if you'd like to learn about a particular Torah topic, I offer one-to-one learning. For each of these services, you can book an appointment for a small fee at my website, rabbijohnnysolomon.com, which seamlessly, with the magic of Calendly, then appears in my online calendar. And within a few minutes, you'll receive a message with a Zoom link. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to talking with you. Okay, we're back. Johnny, before we get to Israel dimension that we reflect, we, we asked about, we, we discussed before the show, we actually do discuss things before the show to our listeners, I want to ask you about Rabbi Sachs's Zionism. Um, especially, you know, I, I know, I read that his, all of his brothers made Aliyah. He had, you know, deep connections to Israel and was without a doubt a passionate religious Zionist. But as you've seen, you know, as we see today, especially, uh, Religious Zionism has shifted over time, and it is shifted very much from, I would say, a religious movement, even a messianic movement, more so to a nationalistic movement, to building up this idea of greater Am Israel, and we can see it even in the politics of today. And so I wonder, as a religious Zionist, but who represents diaspora Jewry, he was a diaspora Jew, he didn't make Aliyah even mm-hmm. after he left, I wonder what, what was his relationship to religious Zionism, especially as it shifted and molded and changed over time, uh, and how did he relate, how did he speak about or talk about his connection to the, the ideology of religious Zionism? Well, um, he was a, not just a proud Zionist. He, uh, he was a vocal Zionist and went out to bat for the Jewish people for Israel. Let's be clear. Um, that That's not to be taken lightly. During his leadership, there are plenty of situations where people challenged Israel. 
and Rabbi Sachs spoke up loudly and proudly and eloquently and not just made the case for Israel but celebrated the beauty of Israel and he gave Jews in the diaspora the language to fall in love with Israel once again at a time when sometimes people were highlighting more of the cracks than necessarily um, the sparkles of Israel. So that's Davarishon. Davarishini um, I, I, want, I want to clarify. Yeah. I want to clarify my question. Religious Zionists today yeah. in Israel. Yeah. I think this is what's important. What's important, and I think it reflects. Um, I think a rift between religious Zionism and modern Orthodoxy. They see the the building of you know Tarat Israel, Am Israel, and Eretz Israel as as a mishulash that must go together, and they see uh, diaspora Jewry as an aberration. You can disagree with me, agree with me, or disagree with me. That's my perception, as a, as something to be corrected, not something to be justified or defended. And here you have a rabbi, who is a religious Zionist, who, as you said, I, that, I took everything you said for granted. It's obvious that he deeply loved and protected and defended the state of Israel. But religious Zionism sees diaspora Jewry as illegitimate. I mean, we can. I don't know if that's true. I know it's. I'll I push, feel it's a hundred percent. I will true. want to push back a little bit about that after Johnny answers the question. Okay, ask your friends in. Uh, ask your friends around the Israeli. No, no, no. I, I hear you. I just. Okay, okay. and I'm I'll wondering how. Well, first of all, Johnny, you, you can either agree with me or disagree with me, but as religious Zionism, uh, ha, you know, if, if that's true, how did Rabbi Sachs, um, I would say, uh, function as an ardent, passionate religious Zionist? that nonetheless says, how come you're not making Aliyah? Okay, so you've distilled the entire Zionist endeavor to where you live. Uh, let's be clear, Theodore Herzl didn't make Aliyah. Oh, come on, that's not you know, fair. So, Theodore Herzl also. No, but I, I, I say that quite sincerely, meaning we have to be... Theodore Herzl lived... Ruby, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of... Some, it's, it's a kind of a... I agree with three Johnny of, here. Three of us are sitting here in Israel, and we've made that journey, uh, and we both... It's like, oh, why didn't the rub make Aliyah? You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like it's... You're, Molly, but you're quoting not me. I'm saying you're quoting Israelis, and Israeli is religious Zionism changed. And it does view it that okay, way. You, not, you might not like it. You might, you might mock it, but that's how people think. I know, that's but I think that's how... Think. I, okay, I'll, not Johnny's nicer. He uses the word some. I'll use the word you think a little few? bit. You don't think No, most? no, no. I was going to say not... Um, aware of complexity people think you know you know i'll, I'll answer by actually I mean, but, you know, i'm going to give you a, a longer answer sorry yeah i'm going to give you a longer answer by referring to this whole israel question but that's not my point my point Tuesday, is not why rabbi Saxon make aliyah that wasn't my question my, my point was he i don't think ideologically he agreed with what most israelis think that's okay, my that point. might be okay. true and that i'll actually sharpen to johnny because this is the tougher question i don't remember what it was but i remember he said something um, in some part of public forum in Israel that started a kerfuffle among Zionists. I don't remember what it was, right? But but that, I think, Ruby, is a better question. The, the way you framed it now is a better question, which is that his, again, no question, he, his, he was a profound Zionist and a defender of the Zionist enterprise. And I, there are pieces that I've read about his experience of being in Jerusalem that are so beautiful and so inspiring. But I think this is, is actually is, that that is how I would kind of, Bimanaseach, how you say that in English, the question to Johnny, which is express. how, yeah, express, how, how was his religious Zionism perhaps different than Israeli religious Zionism? Where, where, where did it differ? That's, that's a great way to ask the question. Great formulation. Formulate. 
That's what you meant. Okay, so I'm going to answer by firstly saying there's no such thing as Israeli religious Zionism. There's Israeli religious Zionisms. We've said that many times. I'm sorry, there's now a whole political party that. that's called Tzionut Tatit, so you better we, get with it. We've just said exactly what we've determined <laughs> that those are not us, right? I, didn't, okay. I had no idea. Okay, okay whatever. <laughs> so, so that's Dabar Echad. Dabar Sheni, yes, religious Zionism, at least from the institutional level uh, or, or more the Khardali uh, level, has become much more one-dimensional. And I think that was a source of distress to him. Uh, he speaks about how uh, religious voices should seek influence, not power. Uh, and he mentions this in a number of his books. And he certainly alludes to and at times explicitly refers to uh, mistakes that are made when religious voices try to uh, influence through having power. And generally, it doesn't work. And here's the deal. I sit here as an Israeli who's made Aliyah, and generally, it doesn't work. We can, we can play games about that, but actually, I believe he was right. Now, there are some people who say, well, Rabbi Sachs was a great Zionist leader for the diaspora, but he didn't understand Israel. Uh, and, and some people are comfortable with doing that. The fact that he didn't effectively communicate much in Hebrew himself uh, also made him appear to be on the sidelines since his death many of his books have been translated and it's a fascinating thing to see how his ideas are being interpreted but I do want to mention a video that was published uh, produced sorry just a couple of days ago by his office it, it was a Hebrew video interviewing a bunch of Israelis about the impact of Rabbi Sachs a few people had been interviewed by the Shloshim video but uh, two years because it's now two years who was on this video? Well, let me tell you, and each of them saw Rabbi Sachs as being their voice, and that, that itself is telling. It began with, it was made, I think, a few weeks ago, before the elections. Yair Lapid, Judge Esther Chayot, Yisrael Merlau, Naftali Bennett, George Dick, Naftali Sharansky, Miriam Peretz, Yuval Elbashan, Fania Oz Salzberger, Eli Paley, Yoram Ra'anan. And what are all these people saying? All these people are saying, He's my rabbi. Now, what do we have on this list? You have a very broad section of Israel or Israelis. And each of them are saying, and, and if you listen to their words, Nathan Sharansky, Yovel Vashan, uh, you know, and, and they're from different sectors with very different relationships with religion. They said he understood the complexity of uh, life and of Israel, he understood, this is what Nathan Sharansky said, the uniqueness of the Jewish people. He celebrated Jewish peoplehood without diminishing Jewish religion, but he didn't just speak from a religious perspective. Instead, he was beyond any individual migzal, and therefore we all felt that he was speaking to us. So when we speak about Israelis think, let's be clear who we're talking about. There are some who may well have taken the view he was a diaspora rabbi, who didn't live here, who was prepared on occasion to speak up from a moral perspective about certain uh, developments in Israel, uh, and that sometimes got him into hot water, either as chief rabbi after that, where people felt that was wrong for him to do so. Uh, but there are others who say quite the opposite. Thank God for people like him, because we've rarely had somebody with such integrity, with such wisdom, with such depth, with such an appreciation of complexity, who actually, rather than giving these one-dimensional answers uh, that we hear in the Knesset, that we hear from our political parties, all of which are likely to not really shape and sculpt the whole Jewish people, people like Rabbi Sachs gave complex answers, which, had we paid more attention to them, actually could have made a difference. And the one word, I'll just end before I turn things back, what I hear from Israelis reading his books now, 
who didn't read them until uh, recently. Uh, firstly, excitement. And I say this from people in my neighborhood, people elsewhere. It's like, wow, this guy, he's amazing. He brings all these different ideas and they're refreshing, they're incredible. And there's also frustration. Like, wow, how come I didn't know of this guy until he died? Because I could have talked to him. He could have helped us. I wish we could have X, Y, Z. And that duality is a very, very powerful uh, message that I hear time after time after time by the people I'm speaking to from all different camps. Wow, what great ideas. And what a shame we haven't been able to figure out how to apply them here because they could have and could still do make a difference. Okay, all that is said and good. I still don't feel like you answered my question or even Molly's question. Namely, what did I not answer? How he formulated his vision of religious Zionism as opposed to how it's, per it's perceived in Israel. So, so I'll, actually, I'll go back to what you mentioned. You mentioned that basically the... I mean, you can't you can hide behind values. there isn't one religious Zionism. No, no, no. I'll, he, he, you're referring to the triangle of values of people like Ben Akiva. Rabbi Sachs, the, what, when, in England, in London, uh, we didn't have that many exciting uh, Yom Atzimut events. There was one... Uh, central Yom Atzimut event where the chief rabbi was there would have a prayer service going from Yom Atzimut to Yom Atzimut and then dancing he'd be there dancing as much as anybody else Rabbi Sachs I absolutely identified with those values but the point is when we say Eretz Yisrael what do we mean? we say in Torah Eretz Yisrael, the point is it's not a question of did those values me mean things to him they meant everything to him it's just what do we mean by those values and the, and the simple answer is different people hear things differently he he recognized that life is complex, uh, peace requires sacrifices, politics is a delicate minefield, and morality must be something that we pursue. So with all those in mind, uh, he was an ardent religious Zionist who deeply believed in the Zionist vision, was deeply proud of Israel, and felt like, you know, that uh, many of us, there'll be moments where we've strayed and that we should try and bring ourselves back. And, and he tried to communicate that in the most delicate way possible um, uh, it, through his books and through his speeches, while always making sure that the first thing and the last thing he said was how much he loved Israel and how proud he was of it. Um, for those who are interested, uh, uh, there's a slightly more nuanced conversation between him and his teacher of Nachum Rabinovich on this point when he interviewed his teacher, which may well be uh, of interest to some people, um, if that's something... I'd be interested if you can share that with me. I want to I hear that. Okay, Molly. Yeah, no, I, I just wanted to say, um, just in terms of this question of diaspora Jewry, so, so first of all, there's a piece by Rabbi Sachs himself. Maybe, Johnny, you can remember it. I don't remember it offhand. I just remember reading it, and it, 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 it was about... Um, the Jewish homeland. It was about, it was about what diaspora Jewry has to contribute, but the centrality ultimately of the Jewish home. I don't remember, you know, the, the Jewish, you know, Israelized the Jewish homeland, and it was very beautifully articulated. Um, I don't know if you can, you know, kind of pull it out of your hat, but it was it was a beautiful, beautiful articulation of that idea um, of of you know what can be gained, what was gained from the diaspora experience over many years, and yet what, what Israel ultimately means in the end. Um, and I just want to say, Ruby, this is just like a, I think it was like a learning point for me, which is why I think this is a good opportunity to say this, which is, I, I know that you're right, and I know that there are many Jews, many 
people who made Aliyah especially, who it's like the first thing they go to is, why, if you're a Zionist, why don't you make Aliyah? And the minute there's anti-Semitism in America, they'll say, well, um, you know, come to Israel. Or um, as you said, like you said it, I think you, you, you said it in a very blatant way, but I think a lot of people think it. Like, so diaspora Judaism is a blip, and this is actually, I don't know what you called it, an aberration. And, you know, this is where the future is. And, and the truth is, like, obviously, I, 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 there's a reason I'm in Israel, and, and, and I do actually personally ascribe to that. I do think this is a center of Jewish history. At the same time, I had a very um, mind-opening conversation with a very, a very dear relative of mine, and I asked her this question, and she said, listen, she believes that there's, oh, there was always, even when, when the, the, the Commonwealth in Israel was thriving, there was always a strong diaspora. There was always a Bavel, and there was always, uh, you know, I don't know what, what else we could say, <laughs> because, uh, you know, now, whatever, wherever the diaspora is. And she said, a strong diaspora, Alexandria, let's say, a strong diaspora living side by side with Israel has its advantages. And so to kind of Whoa. dismiss the value of the diaspora, okay, so maybe it's a, to say, a different podcast. To say it is a different podcast entirely, which I'm not upset about talking about, but to say that there is complexity to me means everyone in their individual lives has complexity and has pulls and pushes. That's one thing. But to say ideologically that, so, that we are intended to have a diaspora so I'm saying, to, to APAC Jewish people and to defend us and whatever. No, they're not there to that, APAC us. And that maybe we always they needed Babel. Babel was considered a terrible sin that Chazal decry over okay, so and over I'm, and over listen, again. again. And call them Hani Rishai. That okay, listen, you're preaching shy. to the converted in terms of my so personal saying, so life. My point wasn't but I, you can play, but it's you not can about complexity. I'm no, saying you, say you did. You can preach complexity all you want, and that's all fine and good. And I, I'm the first. I'm the last person to jump on people and say, "Oh, you have to make aliyah and all that." I, I really am. But there's a difference between that and a chief rabbi who's articulating. I'm not talking an about Jonathan Zach. I am. Okay, I but am. I, I'm, but to I'm pushing back. I, don't, you know, I, I think is to say complexity is true on a personal level, but it's not true on an ideological level. Okay, wait a second. And maybe so you I would get into the deeply and say, well, we need a Babel baloney. Okay, so knows I'm, how to protect us. And, uh, so and, I'm saying to you, I'm saying to you, I don't know what you, actually, this again, this is not, Johnny can maybe answer this more specifically about what Rabbi Sachs thought about is the diaspora community, the Chachil or Bediavet. But I'm just telling you that there are very intelligent people out there, um, very from committed, serious thinking people out there who believe that a diaspora community is valuable. Again, you can take it or leave it, but it, but there is that view out there, and I think it's worth thinking about. You you don't have to accept it; it's worth considering. Um, and again, you know, Johnny, I, I don't. I, it's I'm not, not my impression about. I'm not saying doesn't have value. God forbid. I know many diaspora Jews have a tremendous value. But, but you're saying they you're have saying value once they exist. In, yes, there are yes. people who believe you that intrinsically so, so a diaspora. It's like, they'll take it back one second. Trying, they'll take us back. And say, you know what? Let's leave some people in Egypt okay. to make sure so that you we have sound, No, so you sound like Moshe Rabbeinu getting mad at Reuven Gad and Chatzit Shevet Menashe. And maybe that, that you know, maybe Reuven Gad and Chatzit Shevet Menashe were the first model of a diaspora Jewry. I don't know. And again, you're pushing me to defend a position that isn't my own. I'm just bringing it into the conversation because I think we should be, we should make space for um, people who believe differently. And I think it's a, it's a point of almost arrogance and irritation when Israeli Zionists, certain, certainly Olim, 
their old, their their knee jerk reaction when when uh, diaspora Jews are are suffering or in trouble or worried is to be like, well, you should have made Aliyah. Or why don't you make Aliyah? I think that that that's a very insensitive response. Not just because I mean, it's an insensitive Aliyah. response, Again, mixing, but because wait, but because things. maybe some it of those people response. no, may, but I'm saying not just for your reason because it's insensitive, but because maybe some of those people actually believe lecharchila that they are where they are also for um, hashgafic reasons, and maybe that's okay. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, Johnny wants to answer something, and then I just want to say one final thing about what you, you had said about race Saxon Hebrew, because I think that's such an important point. But yeah, Johnny, you, want to, you actually can give us the greatest insight if you want to bring this this little argument back to Rabbi Sachs. I'm not going to give it. I'm not, it's not for me to... I don't think we. it's right or to talk about what decisions one person did or didn't make. You know, there's a letter of Rav Tolovetsky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, from That's what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not asking about the issue what, of what he wrote actually making things. Aliyah. I'm asking about, you know, like, let's say Rav Hirsch, believe L'Charchila in, you know, universal Judaism, right? right. I don't know if Rabbi Sachs formulated well, anything about that. I'm just, I have no idea. Well, I'm glad you share, share sources about uh, living in Israel. Obviously, he was born in 1938, so the Israel we now are living in as uh, 40, 50-year-olds is different uh, to the Israel that was when, when he was a little bit younger than us, etc. What I, what I'm going to throw Paul back, though. You know, we can quibble about where a person lives. I'm, I'm an ardent Zionist. I think even he even more in terms of the risks he took and the places he went and the words he said. But I believe who he was was a fusion of what he gained from Israeli society and what he drew from the diaspora. And, you know, here's somebody who carried the all of uh, being uh, involved in Tzorchit Tzibah for, for decades. And yet he wrote 40 books, most of which are literally the go-to book on a subject. Tell me, name me an Israeli, somebody who lives here, who has achieved what he's achieved. You see, the thing is, it's all very well and good saying he should have been here. I'd say, well, he wouldn't have been him had he. And there are certain synergies that he drew upon based on where he was. It's not like he didn't come to Israel, for goodness sakes. He was here very, very regularly. But certain synergies of being able to have, you know, Karavla Malchus there in the UK, being able to uh, mix and have a deep, deep involvement and influence in, in politics in a way that his hands remained clean there ways in which he could reach to the US and to Europe and to visit all other countries and to be in Israel repeatedly and, and be involved in so many of our institutions. Name me somebody here who has done uh, what he's done. You may well say, well, Steinzalt, I mean, of course, there are a handful of anomalies. Who also came but from? Let's he, exactly, and he's an yeah. anomaly. Yeah. It's not, who, a, not what, a fair what question. He achieved, How would you, it's impossible drew. to know what he would have achieved or what the Rebbe would have no, achieved. But he moved to Israel. So then let's not be naive not and say about, that Johnny, somehow... Again, I'm not talking about should he have made Aliyah. That's not the point. That's not the question. My question is, what's his ideology of... It, does his ideology... Um, uh, uh, is there an ideology of, you know, okay... You know, this is diaspora Judaism. His ideology is that the ultimate place where Jews should be is Israel. And his ideology is, as long as there's Jews elsewhere, I have a responsibility to them. I also think that, that, what, that what Johnny said was so profound and true. Because, um, you know, and again, like, it's funny that I'm saying this, the, like, you know, in a fervent Zionist. But, you know, I've heard I, rabbis, very well-regarded Israeli rabbis, say things like, oh, I am so... A worldly because I come from, 
I don't know, Tel Aviv or because I traveled to New York. And you're like, you have no idea how parochial you, parochial you actually are. <laughs> um, and we, because we come, from the, we, we come from the diaspora, we recognize that there's a richness that actually was gained from the diaspora. And, and, and maybe this is a good way to segue it, right? Like, think of the contribution, for me, right, at least, of Rav Lichtenstein. And Johnny's right, Rav Lichtenstein would not have been Rav Lichtenstein had he not, um, I don't think, had he not um, been kind of blossomed in the environment in which he blossomed, and then he then he transferred it to Israel. Thank God, and he thank God he brought that to us. But I think that the same could probably be said of Rabbi Sachs, and and I, I do think that we are seeing this renaissance of Rabbi Sachs's thought. Um, you know, Johnny spoke about all those. You know, Yair Lapid and Natan Sharansky and, and all the, the well-known people, to me it's much more powerful to know that in the Yeshivot has dare. There are the there are his everybody's reading. Harav right. Zaks. I'm, I'm, I'm not impressed with politicians on a video. I'm much more impressed with the Yeah, Sachs. And my but, son is reading Rabbi Sachs. Yes, He's our sons are reading Rabbi right. Sachs. Our son, Precisely. I, my son came home, he said I was engrossed by Rabbi Sachs on the train ride back from Yeshiva back to the house. He's like, within fifty minutes he had convinced me. Uh, of atheism and that like and, and scientism and then five minutes later he flipped it all on his head and he convinced me um, of why you know Torah and Torah values <laughs> are correct you know this is you know an 18 year old kid who's just starting his Hesder journey and Rabbi Sachs is at the heart of that journey and he, he and, and and my daughter in, in Migdal O's he's 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 res- these, these these our youth are thirsting for the Torah that he has to provide. And it might be, you know, in the beginning we were talking about because he's, he himself is such a profound thinker and, um, you know, he himself had his finger on the pulse of the issues of the day. But now I'll add, and perhaps he wouldn't have been able, I don't know, this is an open question, to be who he was and to formulate these ideas had he not been coming from outside of our, our you know, again, I'll use the word. I love this country. It's still a parochial bubble. So my answer to you is something I actually wanted to end off with, which is the, a fascinating phenomenon in his education. Rabbi Sachs was not educated as a yeshiva bacher who then went to college and got his PhD. But it was really the other way around. He, you know, he, was, he became a great scholar and a thinker and a philosopher and then decided he wanted to get smicha. Kishan, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was my understanding. You know, and and the word decided is a slight overplay. There was a roll of the ball. Uh, no, no, yeah. Okay, yes. great. But meaning he was he had a world class education. And Molly, your other example of, you know, of Rob Lichtenstein and the same thing being true of of uh, of uh, Rob Soloveitchik, that's all. Like these were people like it's what's fascinating is the the skills they learned in thinking and philosophy and literature and, and, and engaging in the world stemmed less from, I don't think it's necessarily from being in the diaspora, but engaging with it. And may, maybe what I would say to you is, I don't know if you have to live in the diaspora or be born in London or born in wherever you, where it is, in Kiev or whatever it is, but you have to be able to be open to, to, to studying it and being aware of it and learning it. And to be honest with you, like the, the Israeli education is not based in that way for us in the religious in the religious sense. Meaning, and even I would say my understanding, my my knowledge of the of the religious world in general. You know, like philosophy is not like <laughs> my son's decided to go to college, and he 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 really likes philosophy. 
He's like, I'm not doing university philosophy. That's garbage. I'm just, he just reads all the philosophy books. He just, you know, you know, I don't know. Something has changed. But I find it fascinating that I feel that one of Rabbi Sachs's great appeals is he was classically educated. He was he was classically scholar. He was a classic scholar. And only then was and because of that education and scholarship and thinking is he able to then take those Jewish concepts and write about them so eloquently and connect them to philosophy and to economics and, and to things of that nature. And it could just very well be, honestly, and it's not fair, but it could be that, that his comfort in English and in the English language and basically the language of scholarship and knowledge today that people are writing in, you know, he read Richard Dawkins' book first in the original. How many Israelis could do that? Yeah, I agree. And then engage I'm, with it. Yeah, I'm also just wondering, and again, I'd like to hear Johnny's answer. And then we'll, um, we'll wrap up because we're going yes, long. Yes, exactly. Whether it's not just, I agree with you, everything you're saying is correct, but is there also something about living in a diaspora world that is more broadening? Uh, it's, a, it's a question, and again, maybe for a different podcast, but is, is it not just about, you know, let's say like Rav Cook sitting in Volazhin and like reading uh, Spinoza translated into Hebrew, but it's about having to engage with the world and growing up in a multicultural, uh, sophisticated environment that's bro- that's broader than than if he had if a person who just lives in Israel and, you know, becomes a scholar. I'm, I'm just curious. I don't know. I'm opening the question. Okay, so I just want to say two, three quick, quick, quick things. Uh, in his in the book that was just published two months ago, I believe uh, he has a line because I just collated quotes from there to finish off this chiefly quotes where he describes uh, Rav Lichtenstein and Rav Nachum Rabinovich as his two gdolim. He learned from Rav Rabinovich for for quite so many years, and the very fact that he identifies these two figures as being our gdolim, the people that his to his mind are the go-to people, says a lot about what he thinks is possible in terms of combining, in one case more art, in the other case more science, in terms of engaging in the world and giving people uh, a message of Judaism that is impressive and moral and compelling. Point number two, we've talked about his education. I think what you just said, uh, Reuven, is absolutely spot on. His education was and continued to be an absolute foundation for who he was, how he thought, how he wrote, that discipline which too often we don't get in Jewish education. He had and he applied. And one of the last books he wrote, uh, I think the last that was published in his lifetime, was Morality. There's a brilliant, brilliant interview, and I encourage you to watch it, where he is interviewed about this book in a magazine called Tortoise in London. And what question he's asked is, you know, you've written this book, Morality, but almost none of your sources are religious. How come? Basically, you're a rabbi, you've written a book of morality. How come almost none are religious sources? And he says, listen, you have to remember, I, I was before I was a rabbi, I was a philosopher. I, I was a moral economist, right? And, and he says, I have that language, which I can use. And being able to use that language without harnessing religious language to make arguments, I, I think is a really important thing. And that's where he learned the art of being able to communicate deep ideas in ways which doesn't always default to authority, defaults to the Torah or the Talmud, etc. If you can make an argument... Before your third point, point, before your third point sound, Johnny, I think that might be why our kids are so connected to him now. Because that's the language that speaks to them. As opposed right. to I'll send the you the, cli- the link where he you know, says that, this, and you'll be yeah. just blown away you, you know what I'm in saying? that like, moment. And I think we live in, we live in a Western world. 
And in the rabbinic world, mm-hmm. the, the more rabbinic world, the more yeshivish world, whether I'm not thinking yeshivish in the black or white term, but the more, the more Torani world you live in, like that language doesn't speak to you. But we live in that world. And finally, you know, our kids are reading Harry Potter and they're, they're you know, and they're, re- they're, they're, reading, they're reading Western culture. They're reading Western hi- history, you know, whether in English or in Hebrew, my kids specifically in English. And so that, some, finally someone who can formulate in a way that speaks to them and it speaks to Israelis as well, because they're reading Harry Potter in Hebrew. Yeah. I think that might also speak to why it's so popular. And then go to your third point, and then we have to we gotta stop. My, my, my third point actually relates to you. Uh, just uh, last week, I graduated this course I attended uh, of, of being a rabbi uh, for Tsar Weddings in Israel. Oh, yeah, Mazel Tov, uh, I saw well, that. No, yeah, good. Exactly. Now, uh, we were at the graduation in Beknes at Zahol Avram in Lod. Uh, the rest of my uh, uh, colleagues of, of this class all Israelis from different uh, parts of the world, different backgrounds, uh, you know, more Haredi, less Haredi, Ethiopian, whatever, whatever. And Rav David Stav came just to give blessings uh, as we completed. And who is the one person he quoted in the beautiful remarks he gave? Rabbi Sachs. I'm thinking there, think, sitting there thinking, you know, this guy is a great Talmud Chacham. He deals with lots of things every day. But why does he quote Rabbi Sachs? Because fundamentally, Rabbi Sachs has been consistently the voice when it comes down to marriage and family. In actual fact, what all we say about the religious Zionist endeavor, sometimes we've taken for granted certain things and decided to talk about other things. And actually, it's those fundamentals, those basics, which we all need reminders of. And the fact that David Stuff, the only person he quoted, uh, and he did so with such eloquence, is Rabbi Sachs has basically formulated what we represent. And he said it to this group of people. And they said, voila, that's, that's really what we're trying to do here in terms of uh, our role uh, and, and uh, marrying Jews together. That itself tells us that his voice continues to resonate in all parts of Israeli society and the wider world. Okay, wow, we'll have to wrap it up here. We could go on, obviously, but uh, we're way over time. I want to thank you, Johnny, uh, specifically for your openness to, be, uh, to answer questions on the fly. I, I think that's uh, <laughs> no, really most. Thank you retrospectively. I didn't know I was going to, but <laughs> yeah, my okay. pleasure. And uh, as always, I enjoyed these conversations because I learned from them. And uh, Molly, we're going to have to have that conversation about diaspora jury one, one next sometime in the future. Maybe bring on somebody from the diaspora to take the diaspora position. It certainly would be interesting. I want to thank Rabbi Nick Malibraski, Rabbi Johnny Solomon. Uh, thank myself. Thank my son for our music. Thank all of our listeners. If you made it this far, have a great week, everyone.